Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. We have survived Jim Crow, the civil rights struggle, the Vietnam War, the war on poverty, the war on drugs, the war on terror, the age of Obama, and the age of Trump. We have a lot to say and a lot of people we want to talk to before we leave the planet. In this episode, we talk about black conservatism and black Republicans. In 2016, Donald Trump captured 6% of black voters, and according to a 2017 Pew poll, 8% of black voters identify in some way with the Republican Party. Our guest is Leo Smith. He is founder and president of Engaged Futures Group, LLC, a free market opportunity development company. He is a black Republican from Atlanta, and we wanted to find out why. With me are five of my black classmates, Fred Easter from Minneapolis, John Woodford from Ann Arbor, Ezra Griffith from New Haven, George Jones and his daughter Adrian from Atlanta, and Jerry Secundi from Pasadena. Plus, we are joined by classmates Bill Collins from Aiken, South Carolina, Marcy Benstock from New York City, Cindy Wardle from Tuscany, Italy, Nick Bancroft from Medfield, Massachusetts, Mason Morfitt from Freeport, Maine, Doug Shapiro from Louisville, Kentucky, George Allen from Los Angeles, and Hampton Howell from Nashville, Tennessee. Leo Smith says his move towards Republicanism began in his youth. Freedom and liberty is different for some people than others based on zip code, based on um, how policing is done, those kinds of things. So when I was growing up, I noticed stuff like that. I was that weird kid who had noticed, I mean, you know, little differences. And it was a shock to me growing up on a pig and peanut farm in Wakeville, Virginia, and in in, in running through cornfields. But then when I saw a different life, when I um, made the state symphony, playing the trumpet, um, you know, you play sports. You're, as a black kid, you kind of see the same kind of people um, all the time, it seemed like. But when I did state symphony, I got exposed to a whole new world. And, and it exposed me that not everybody lives the same. And not all the political ecosystems are the same. Not all the resource sharing is the same. Um, so I got really, really attuned to how societal differences are exacted, how they differ based on resources available. And so as I grew into a teen, I began to be very engaged in civic action. Like I, I lived in a section eight neighborhood and you know I had friends because like, I was kind of encouraged to go to a predominantly white school once I got to high school. And then, so I saw, I had friends that were country club swimmers but here I was, I'd never been into a cement pond. You know, I called it a cement pond. You know, I'd never been in a pool, but they were country club swimmers. And I'm like, well, is there a pool in my neighborhood? I, so I, I found out in the little neighborhood that I, when we moved to the city, there was a cement pond there, but it was full of trash cans and nobody was operating it because, uh, you know, section eight neighborhood, they didn't know how to run a civic association. They weren't doing anything like that. So I, I repaired the swimming pool as a, a 14 year old. Eventually, I uh, got my mom to help form a civic association, which I learned about through 
um, one of the wrestling coaches at the school that I was attending, what a civic association was, and got my first job in organizing. And that sense of empowerment that I got, um, as I'm growing and matriculating older, 15 years old, 16, and I'm hearing about this guy, Ronald Reagan, and you know he's a lifeguard. I'm a lifeguard now because I took that opening of that swimming pool that I worked on and got that swimming pool in the Section 8 neighborhood open. And then I actually got, because of work, CETA work permit, you guys might remember the CETA work program that if you were uh, uh, you qualified, you could work early as a, as a teenager. And so I got the, the ability to work before I was 16 years old. And I got licensed with junior lifesaving, opened up a swimming pool, the guy hired to do lifeguarding. And so Ronald Reagan was part of my political convergence. Plus I grew up in an African Methodist Episcopal church the discipline, that book about order and connectivity and, and discipline and following, you know, the, the ways, and I, you know, most black people, especially religious black people have a strong conservative connection. So my political praxis started to develop sort of at a time when those things were all merging together for me. And so I mostly identified with Republican rhetoric and Republican ideas, and especially with that that, that thing for me that allowed me to pay $300 a month for my mom's, you know, Section 8 uh, rent. And so here I was paying my mom's rent at 15 years old. And that sense that a dignity that I had as I did that became a very compelling thing to me on how I process all things related to what are the best ways to give man life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so that's been a large part, part, part of how I identify with the Republican Party. And so I am a person who mostly votes Republican. I decided to be a Republican strategist because I saw the most opportunity to create, uh, to create successes, first downs in policy um, making for social justice and black uplift and mobility. And that's why I primarily work with Republican uh, when I, and I'm a Republican strategist. Now, I'm in purgatory right now, you know, that started with Trump, good, but we'll good. talk about that. <laughs> you said, Leo, you said you were going to pause for questions. Yes. I sir. just want to point out that you are one answer in the hole already regarding voter suppression in Georgia. Yes. <laughs> Amen. It is a very important issue, uh, sir. You know, the, the, the whole voter suppression issue is one that I think has become even more egregious because of our lack of engagement. Um, in other words, we don't even know how to talk about voter suppression very well. Politicians really run amok on us, the citizens, when we aren't defining what democracy ought to be and all the elements of democracy. So when we talk about voter suppression, the fact is, is that laws are being made that have been made over you know, <laughs> hundreds of years in America in order to disenfranchise people so that other people could have more power. So as we progressed, we don't just try and stop, say, black and brown people from voting just because they're black and brown. The fact is we, we also stop them because they mostly vote one way or the other. And that one way they mostly vote is with the Democratic Party. So the Republicans certainly have, have devolved um, back to some old Jim Crow ways, right? They've devolved back into uh, uh, trying to create codes and laws and statutes now, and even in the machinations of voting 
that was will turn down, suppress, we use voter suppression, but decrease the likelihood that black people would vote. Now they will say to you, well, that's not necessarily racist because we're not doing it because they're black. We're trying to suppress their vote because they're Democrats and they're easy to see and target and locate. That's one of their arguments. But you know, it is a, a, a it's, it's a terrible, terrible practice if it actually disenfranchises people at all. We should look for ways to make sure that voting is secure, but fully accessible, fully engaging. And in the, the practices that we're using lessens us. It makes us a dark, 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 dark country when we look for ways to stop people from being able to add to the discourse. A vote is not just a choice. A voice is discourse. And so we need more discourse about what makes democracy better, Republicans and conservative ideology. So I don't, I don't support this voter suppression stuff. I think it's horrible. And I think when done by Democrats, Republicans, anybody who, who does it, decreasing a people's ability to turn out based on the desired outcome that we have to win an election. I thought, that, I thought Leo, that they, wait, I, wait, I thought that they was you. Hmm? I didn't well, you're here, you're the guest because you're a Republican here in Georgia. That's and correct. So, um, so, you know, I appreciate you saying that this is not something you agree with, but what I need you to talk about is something more like some drill down into some of the specifics about why your countrymen are doing such a thing or, you know, what their agenda is, when it was built. Like, can you tell us about it, even if you're well, saying you don't agree with it? Yeah, look, there's lots. My governor doesn't agree with it. And he was the secretary of state who held his position uh, while he was running against Stacey Abrams, that, that being Brian Kemp here in Georgia. Um, he's even said that he doesn't agree. And I think what you'll see in Georgia, and I just want to, this is Brian to Kemp influence. Wait a minute. He's what? the one that purged Brian voters Kemp, so he didn't from the agree. What? What? <laughs> what you saying? What? Yes. He's, you will see. You will see. And I'm, I'm giving you the end before I give you the hook at the beginning. The end of this is that the bill that ends up on Brian Kemp's desk for in Georgia, and we got Arizona, we got all Pennsylvania, we got things going on. So what will end up in Georgia is a much simpler version than what we're hearing about in the media right now, because Brian Kemp, I know for a fact, has told them. Now, you know, people evolve and they sometimes evolve because of political opportunity. So he has to run against Stacey Abrams. He needs to moderate himself, right? He needs to come back and seem like a fair guy who believes in justice, whether he believes it or not. Politicians do what's convenient for elections or fundraising. And exactly. that's what this is about. I understand. And so, I mean, even if Brian Kemp signs a pared down version of what we are talking about, we are still talking about inappropriate rules as opposed to using the model of the last extremely fair triple time recounted election that we just had. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. I can't get on board with your Brian Kemp. I, 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 this is a good point that he needs to moderate. I really appreciate that. But I cannot get on board with the- um, Leo, let me, let me ask, when you, when you are in the Republican caucus, or you know, you're off among your fellow Republicans, what kind of conversation do you have with them when you make these points that you've made to us? When you make it to them, how do they respond and what is the interaction with them like? 
So, so again, there's their response to all of my work, the voter engagement work that I did when I was an executive with the Georgia Republican Party. They think that that is that is those are very difficult things to do. So, in other words, yes, we can win by raising our better angels. We can win through influence, conversation, and engagement. But that's long term. That's long form work. It's long form work to actually sit down and talk to Mr. Woodard and see if I can get him to agree with me on policy and ideas, right? It's short form work. It's quick and easy to throw grenades that are filled with racist tropes or gin up people's uh, donation and, and, and involvement by doing something that is stoked from their fears about changing demographics and brown people and that sort of thing. So in other words, yes, that, what the conversation we have is a, is a conversation that is often in great disagreement that look, I'm a conservative and I want conservative ideas out there. I don't want to win by tricks. And so we have that conversation. So in other words, there is some remnant, a small thread of redemption, redemptive people starting to, 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 to stand with some character and some conviction against these things. Um, these laws uh, you know, that, that we're talking about, for instance, um, the no excuse absentee ballot, Republicans created that law in 2005. The automatic ID, I mean, the automatic voter registration, Brian Kemp himself created that. So you can't one day say, well, you know, a first down is 10 yards. And then when you're not, you know, getting many first down, you decide, well, no, a first down now is 15 yards because the other team's getting more first down. So we need to stop them. Can't, that's what we're doing as Republicans. That's not a way to make a better democracy, nor is it a way to make a sustainable Republican Party. And so we've got to change our ways. We've got, it's gonna hurt for a while. The Republican party is gonna lose a lot of elections for a while. We're gonna become a regional, a regional party. But as we go through these demographic shifts, which is the larger story, um, that, that we're gonna to have to just go through this struggle as America starts to transform. These voter suppression acts are because we've allowed voter suppression for a very long time. We call it electioneering. We called it electioneering. Political consultants say things like, I'm agnostic. I don't make a judgment about the moral value of electioneering. What allies in the Republican Party now do you have uh, considering the situation as you described it? Well, sometimes when things in society are really tough, you have to make your allies. Yeah. Um, you have to help them see that they need to be an ally to you for all of us, for all of us, because we're gonna end up in incredible race wars. We're already in a race war in America. And we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to really deal with that because it is not gonna get better for white people by continually, continually balkanizing. So our allies are gonna have to be people who see that we are engaged in a future and we have to work it out. It's like a marriage, you know, if you're gonna stay in that marriage. But within the Republican Party, who are these people now? Where are they? Who well, are they? Well, you're hearing some, you know, Adam Kinzinger. Adam Kinzinger is doing some, you know, some work, country first, um, that's moving us back into a better, better direction. You got uh, Hogan out of Maryland. Um, I think his group is Better Angels or something to that effect. He's doing some work. 
Um, I do a lot of work on this thing called uh, uh, the, the, after we vote um, on Clubhouse with a bunch of venture capitalists and Silicon Valley people trying to raise a movement like this, edifying um, people like Michael Steele, who was former RNC chairman, uh, African-American, you know, former lieutenant governor of Maryland, um, trying to create the voices of the better angels so that we create more signal that there are Republicans out there who are contrite in spirit and realize that we've gone down the wrong path and that we need to re, we, we need to correct. It may be that Republican Party may end up being a minor party when it comes to overall party influencer, but can help decide presidential elections um, where where most of them are for the next few years might be Democrats. Um, so so that may be a suffering that we have to go through for the betterment of the country. And we have to edify the Republicans who are willing to join us. So like, for instance, when Lieutenant Governor um, Jeff Duncan, you know, had this change of heart, um, then that's an opportunity to create an ally. And we have to keep looking for allies like that. We have I to would consider becoming a Republican, Leo, which I never have, if, if you guys would work with Stacey Abrams and, and, and increase increase uh, uh, voter participation everywhere. Well, thank you. If, if and that's and I, what you want to do. Would you do that? Absolutely. I, and look, and that, you know, if, if, if I had the, 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 the charisma and charm of Denzel Washington or somebody and I could create a big movement, that's exactly it. And that's what I'm working on as much as I can, whether I'm supporting Dr. Bernice King and helping her in that way. Um, one of my clients was the Secretary of State of, uh, of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger. He was one of my clients. Democrats are very pleased with the way that he administered the election. And I am very pleased to have advised and counseled with him through that process. And I think Republicans can facilitate that. And look, Sunday voting, for instance, it is not a disadvantage to Republicans that people can vote on Sunday after church. What it is, is lazy political consultants who won't use the same methodology, who won't go to evangelical voters, which most of the time align with Republicans, and do the same thing. If I understand, you were really inspired by Ronald Reagan. The Republican Party bears no resemblance whatsoever to the Republican Party under Ronald Reagan. Why are you still a Republican? Well, I'm still a Republican, just like I'm still a Black man and a Black American in America that doesn't also do a lot of things I don't like. So I'm a Republican because that's I haven't fully left the party because that is the party I still feel like that there's opportunity to push a lot of agenda. Okay, so my alignment with Republicans is in large part based on my value system and how I see my, my philosophy of life and progress. But it's also a, a practical thing in Georgia. Um, in Georgia, legislation is controlled by Republicans. Democrats would come to me when I wasn't even a legislator and ask me to help them get policy done. But Leo, is that not changing? I mean, Georgia's become a purple state at this point in time. You've elected two Democratic senators, that's for darn sure. Uh, I think Stacey Abrams has a very good chance of becoming the next governor. So, you know, the ideals that you espouse, the principles that you're talking about, really don't resonate with the current Republican Party, certainly no, not one dominated by Trump. That is certainly the case, yeah, it's certainly the case. So I am not gonna change lickety split, but that doesn't mean that I couldn't change. You know, I voted for a Democrat before. I voted for Obama, President Obama, the first time. 
Um, and but I didn't, you know, after that, of course. And so the, the point is, is that when we find ourselves in shifts, we don't have to jump ship immediately. We have to continue to work on the salvaging of the ship that is sinking as well, because there might be some value in that. Where people are, there is hope. So when I look to do, for instance, institutional diversity, this is a very important thing. I've been doing it for a long time. It would not be helpful for me to go to Hampton University as I grew up in Virginia and say to Hampton Institute, a prestigious and esteemed black uh, university, um, predominantly black university and say, I need to help you um, engage with more black people because most of the people there are black. It would. It was helpful for me to do it at Virginia Tech and at UVA and at the Hartwick College in upstate New York, um, because those were predominantly white universities that needed to open their doors to opportunities. Which party currently needs the most help when it comes to inclusion and diversity? The Republicans. Clearly party. the Republicans. Clearly the Republicans need the most help. But I'd be interested to hear two ideas that Republicans have, period, but also two ideas that they have that might appeal to black people. Yes. Well, currently the Republican party doesn't exist based on ideas. There is no Republican party. <laughs> Bingo, right. okay, okay. We're on the right? same. Oh, man. Yeah, the party is in recess and is being operated completely on fear and fraud. And that's what's operating the party right now. We got to get out of that now. If the party was back, criminal justice reform would be one. School choice would be another one. Um, you know, I am now, I just uh, helped found a second public charter school here in Georgia uh, that has decreased the learning gap between whites and blacks and those who are wealthy and those who are poor tremendously. So much so that Atlanta public school system looked at our numbers and were like, that can't be right. So we have a mo modality based on this opportunity to create a locally focused themed education that has really, really helped black people, black students catch up to a lot of wealthy white kids. So we're now templating that. That was Republican led legislation that made that happen in Georgia. So we, we have what it takes. We just don't know how to duplicate it in a way that won't scare white folks. Let me just be frank about it. Won't scare white folks. Wow, these people are all catching up to us now. The Republican policies like criminal justice reform, for whatever, you know, the reason why is different based on party, I, I think, identity um, for criminal justice reform. Um, do, uh, uh, Governor Deal did criminal justice reform mainly because he wanted to save money, <laughs> not because he wanted to reduce the prison industrial complex, but the end result was more people being able to fully engage in the economic system, which means their life and their liberty was back in their own hands. That's an important thing. So that was a Republican concept. We need to continue to do things like that. Now, when Stacey Abrams takes over in Georgia, doesn't mean that I, because I'm a Republican, I won't work with her. I think more Americans need to be agenda-focused people. You know, it just so happens that I like the Atlanta Braves because I live here. Doesn't mean I can't appreciate the Los Angeles Dodgers or that Boston team up there, you know, that Red Sox team. I can appreciate them still. I can love baseball still. I love America. I love democracy. I think it's wonderful. And it's wonderful for not just for our nation, but other nations. But if the Republican Party is broken, you know, we've now got an unchecked system here of a one-party nation, and we can't have that. 
that's not that's not going to be helpful for us in innovation. It's not going to be helpful for us in representation. We've got to, We've got to have a a functional, reasonable, uh, at least second party, if not third and fourth and fifth party. I guess there are two points I'd like to make to our, to our guests and see what see see how he responds to them. A fundamental thing for me is because I'm working a lot on this now. This idea of dignity. I like to think that the people interact with me that they are granting that I inherently have a certain dignity, and they they can see it in me and they can respect it. The Republican Party and many of the the vocal representatives of the party have made it clear that they don't see that. I mean, the, 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 the minority leader of the Senate, for example, when he presents an argument that he wishes to control the appointments of judges uh, to all the appeals courts and even to the trial court on the federal level, he's, he basically says, you know, I want them all to look like me, to sound like me, and to have my judgment with regard and with regard to justice and so on. I think that's bad for the, I think it's bad for the country because he wants judges to be all thinking alike and they're all anti-black and anti-Latino. So, so that the fundamental question here is there's no dignity left. There's no dignified space I can, I can, I can occupy within the justice system and sit on the bench. Now, I, I just can't stand that. And it's one of the reasons that I, I don't even listen to the minority leader in the Senate anymore because I don't trust him. And because I fundamentally believe he has no respect for me and for people like me. So why would I want to be that kind of Republican? That's, that's part of the argument that I just, I just simply don't get. Um, and, and, and everybody understands that Trump may come. Trump may come back, even if he doesn't occupy a specific post. He has followers who want to behave the way he's behaving and and stand for values that he espouses. I can't. I just can't stand that. And it's not a matter of intellectual disagreement. It's, this is one of the the, the first experience. Well, no, I shouldn't say the first. That's not right. But it's one of the major experiences recently in my life where I'm encountering a phenomenon where the people espousing the values behind this phenomenon that's sweeping the country are saying, Ezra Griffith is a piece of S, you know, and I, and I, I can't take that. I, I can't, I, I just can't deal with people who fundamentally don't think much about my inherent inviolable worth. So I'd like, I'd like the guests to respond to that because because the second question would be, I'd, I'd like to sharpen some of the other questions that came recently. Why wouldn't you save your energy and put much of what you're doing, which is so fantastic, and just do it on the Democratic side? You, you, you've, you've, you've presented a counter argument to that, but it hasn't been, to my mind, as persuasive. Uh, and I'm recognizing the inherent value of having a person like, I mean, I'd like you on my side. But why don't why don't you just come over? Why don't you just sleep better at night and come over? <laughs> because there's not, as not, there's not as much room open on the Democratic side. There's a lot of room open on the Republicans. Well, th th that's 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 functional. There's that's certainly functional. And Ezra, you know, 
what you're saying is absolutely the case. You know, I, you know, I, you know, we often say, you know, be careful of where you cast your talents, right? Um, if you go from a biblical exegesis, you would say, don't cast your talent before swine. Not that you are like looking at Republicans as swine. What you're saying is they're looking at you as swine and they're deciding, I don't want anything to do with this person. I don't want, I don't like him. But you know what? They don't have a choice. <clears throat> they don't have a choice. They're making a choice not to deal with you, but goodness always is going to prevail. We're, we are continually evolving as a nation of differences, okay? We don't have unanimity all the time, but we people want unity. They actually want that. People don't want what the Republicans are doing. They don't want what McConnell is doing. They don't want that. There are some people who want that, but we saw through this last election what most people wanted. They made it known in their voting what they wanted. Uh, I, I can't accept that because all that I've read and all that I've thought about demonstrates to me quite clearly that control of the justice system is a fundamentally important uh, issue in this country. So I am, not, I am not willing to give that up to, to, to McConnell and let him control it for the next 30 years. Absolutely not. I think it's criminal that, that he basically essentially says, I have no worth in the way in which he thinks about black people. I have no worth and he controls the judges. That seems to me unacceptable. So, so you got to, you got, you, I mean, you got to give me something to go home and and say, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I ought to change my mind and think about becoming a Republican. But you but to- I don't see. I don't. I I'm not a partisan. I'm a Republican strategist, but I'm not a partisan. A partisan is a person where party means more than ideas. But that's a philosophical concept. One of the things about my life is that I've spent 40 years in the academy and the university, and I understand a theory. I have also come to understand, though, the importance of the practical implications of theory. If you can't come with the practical implications, then all the poor people I have helped over the years can't eat. And that's what it's about. People are going to jail because there, there's a certain a certain temperamental person on, on that on, on the judge's days. And I can't stand for 40 years all of those people controlling all the ju- all the courts in this country. I mean, this is this is practical stuff. That's what I am talking about. It is practical stuff. And it's and it's the same thing when they want to control uh, the, the educational system because they have a philosophical approach that says, you know, this is the position that I think blacks ought to be in with respect to, 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 to all, 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 all the fancy schools represented incidentally, interestingly, in this group here that we're talking about. You know, I, I, want, I want a mechanism that assures representation of black people in places like Harvard and Yale and so on. I want that access for black people. And I don't want a Republican argument that controls the notion of affirmative action. Right. Because, because, because practically mm-hmm. affirmative action, I don't want them controlling everything. And I'm not talking about just philosophically. I don't right. want them controlling affirmative action in the context of the courts. You see the linkages that I make in my mind? And this is not just theory. I got the theory, man. I mean, I've spent 40 years with the theory. That's not what I'm interested right. in anymore. You got to come to me and tell me how black people are going to benefit 
from the practical implications of the political control uh, of, of these theoretical elements. And I am interested particularly in health and in education and the things that constitute really important practical matters related to everyday living. That's where mm -hmm. I am at, at this late stage in my life. That's what I want the younger people to understand that that's what pol politics should mean. Not, not just the theoretical discourse. Right. I, I, I can tell what a guy is going to say in the New York Times before he even starts. I just read the first paragraph. I know where right. he's going with the argument. Right. But, but I want to I hear the practical stuff from you. Help me. Help, help, help me with this. Because McConnell wants to come back. And he wants to find a way to now, even though he's not the majority leader of the Senate, he wants to find a way that he actually stops anything from happening in the Senate. It's an incredible concept. Think about it. Because, because a lot of people don't even understand the natural implications, which is he wants a dictatorship. That's what he's into. And I don't want to get into the, 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 the psychological implications because it's obvious to me in my discipline that that's what he's interested in. He wants a dictatorship. That's what Trump wants. Right. And a dictatorship means, on a, I'm talking about the practical level, the practical level, these guys want to institute values and notions that they hatch. And those values are intended to punish members of minority groups. Not, not by accident, it's planned. That's what I want to hear you respond to me about. I am, I am willing to consider, and I do every day, whether or not I'm wasting my time. So when it comes to Republicans who seem you know, you know, they, they, there's no, there's no changing their minds. There's no way to soften their hearts and loosen their necks and let them look another way um, at doing things. Um, yeah, you shake the dust from your feet and you move and you go and do it where you can get the work done. But I, I you know, I, I am willing to consider, sir, Ezra. I am willing to consider that sometimes just saying no more. I, I reject the evil, the hate, the, the ways that you are operating. Like you said, the way that you are insulting people, you know, tell those women to go back to the country they came from, you know, that kind of just ridiculous, hurtful stuff that sometimes rejecting those people and just walking away totally, maybe, maybe sometimes that is the right way, but that's not what's happening in America. <clears throat> we had, as you saw, 74 million people still voted for Donald Trump in the Republican Party. Someone has to engage them. But how do you restrain someone like Mitch McConnell from within the Republican Party? By working with Democrats. So I don't have to be a Democrat to ally with Democrats, to create an alliance with them. And there are Democrats that I will work with, and I do work with. I would imagine Dr. Bernice King is a Democrat, but I work with her to get voter education done, to create voter access, to create uh, uh, elections with integrity and security. Uh, we work together on that. Um, she's a, probably a Democrat. I never asked her. So, well, that's, so an, that's, an, that's an important point you just made. And I, I, I grant you that. And I'll, I'll have to think about that. But because that, that's a practical matter that I think deserves serious consideration about you know, perhaps having some people who are Republicans making alliances with, um, you know, with, the, with the Democrats in pursuit of some reasonable 
values and so on that, that would be of, of help to a broader spectrum of people. <clears throat> and I'll, no, I'll no, Ezra, and thank you, Ezra. And But, you know, of course, what will happen there is, you know, eventually the Republicans will say, well, he may call himself a Republican strategist, but, he but he's but not he a Republican. Right. right. And right. they then therefore may start blocking me. And, you know, I'm no longer a friend of the party um, when they see this happening repeti repetitively. But I've got the job of also telling them why this works better for the Republican Party. Again, a lot of my practical experiences have shaped how I see this thing. I was once standing in front of Hotel Roanoke in Roanoke, Virginia. And it was the third time this has happened. A gentleman walks up, throws me the keys to his car, thinking I'm the valet, right? <laughs> and this time- You should have left with it. Right. So this, and Mr. Fred, Mr. Fred, this, this time I did leave with it because he had a Lamborghini. And I took it for a spin. Then I came back in, he was sitting at the bar and I walked up to him, I handed him his keys and I said, man, that thing went 75 in second gear. And he looked at me, he goes, you drove my car? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm hanging out at the hotel just like you. I thought it was very generous of you to give me your keys. Well, that gentleman became my first diversity client because he owned a large insurance company. And I said, how many times do you make the mistake of judging a potential customer, a paying customer, because you think their skin color doesn't qualify them? And his insurance company never sold to black people. And I helped him open that market. Now, did I change his heart about black people? Well, I wouldn't have if I didn't give him a chance to engage with more black people and give his team and his leaders. So I'm sure some of their hearts did get changed. But it was a practical reason they did it. And those opportunities sometimes present themselves. That's what happened with prison reform in Georgia and in Texas. The Republicans saw opportunity there that, you know, my concern was, does it get the job done? And, and that's how practical it is sometimes to stay at the table. As they say, if you aren't making the menu, then you're on the menu, right? I want to make the menu. I want to create the food called Things That Feed Democracy. We want to make that at all the tables across America and leave no table unattended. Well, let me ask you, uh, uh, Nick, where are you on this? Well, I, uh, very good discussion. It comes, it brings me back to where we started in a way, and that is voting is understood by both Democrats and Republicans. It's, uh, it's the old uh, pickup for a baseball team and you, uh, you work, your, you toss a bat to somebody and they put their hands above the hands and so on and so forth. Everybody agrees on that. <clears throat> so um, I, I like Leo's point about working with Republicans on uh, problems of voter suppression, but I just don't, and I guess it's a judgment call. I don't understand Leo's stance on, uh, it's a long-term issue or a short-term issue. I think it's definitely short-term and you go to the mat on it, otherwise you lose your credibility. No, no doubt, yeah, absolutely, sir. And, and that's what I mean. There needs to be at least a credible two-party system in America. The Republicans right now are operating not as a party, they're operating as a group of thugs. And that is unacceptable. Whether I was Republican or Democrat, I would want to help fix that. And that's what we have to do. We have to 
um, you know, we have to raise up a consciousness. I've raised my, my daughter and son with a certain set of values, way of seeing life. Um, it is mostly conservative, and, and if one were to examine it. But Republican Party, I mean, they can't relate to the Republican Party right now. Most of what I've taught them is not being practiced by the Republican Party. And so, so we've got to, there has to be a place for them to see their viewpoints on life um, you know, as, as something that will flourish, that there's a place for it. Um, and, and these ideas need to be tested. And so, you know, I, I kind of, you know, raise my own standard um, for myself and the way I live my life to be challenged, to be challenged, to live challenge and to lead challenge. And, and that's what I raise my children to do as well. And so that standard is the standard that I think we need in politics. And we need to challenge this voter suppression stuff because it reduces the ability to challenge. It reduces and, and disenfranchises people from challenging other people for political seats, for political ideas, for the, the sharing of resources. Challenge is what makes things better. <clears throat> I'm thinking that uh, <clears throat> it's a lot better to be on principled positions than it is to be on opportunistic positions. Uh, mm. The worst problem we have right now that I see is that structurally the United States is inherently not democratic. Uh, when California with 40 million people has two senators and uh, Wyoming with 500,000 people has two senators, that's, uh, there's just no way you can reconcile that with anything other than being totally and utterly irrational. Uh, and we have Americans all the way from the Atlantic time zone, which is east of the Eastern time zone, uh, to out there in the uh, plus uh, 10 time zone on Guam and the Northern Marianas, who are American citizens who are subject to being drafted and being made to serve uh, involuntarily in the military and potentially lose their lives, uh, who are totally disenfranchised in the Congress. Uh, the opportunistic position of the Democratic Party would be, let's have statehood for DC and Puerto Rico. But the principled position would be, uh, let's get everybody who's an American citizen and under the American flag and subject to all of the benefits and the negatives uh, into statehood. And that would uh, get you to a state for the Caribbean, for uh, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. It would get you to a state for the District of Columbia, and it would also get you to a state for the Mariana Islands made up of Guam and the Northern Marianas, which right now combined have a, a population virtually identical to within a thousand people, the number of people who uh, were in Alaska when Alaska became a state in 1959. Uh, now that would get you three more states uh, two of which would be reliably democratic, and a third of which out there in the Marianas would probably be Republican, uh, and all three of which would be predominantly non-white. Uh, and uh, I, I'm much more interested in things that, that can be justified as principled and making some kind of rational sense in a Cartesian kind of way than I am in saying I want to nibble away at a fundamentally indigestible uh, set of circumstances. 
I, mean, I, I do think that if, if we can just prevent uh, dictatorship from emerging from the current Republican Party, and it was a close run thing that that didn't happen uh, last November, uh, that uh, long term uh, demographics alone are going to sink that ship. I don't think that ship, with due respect, is going to be sunk by your endeavors. I think that ship is going to be sunk as uh, fundamentally bigoted, hopeless, uh, 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 uneducated white people die off disproportionately uh, to the number of uh, ways in which the demographics of this country are changing. Uh, and you know, good God, where Jerry and I live, uh, the two great uh, universities have become enormously diverse uh, and huge in relationship to, say, Harvard and Yale, which have remained basically static in size uh, during all of our lifetimes. So in terms of just sheer numbers of non-white people being educated at a very high level of opportunity and skill sets and everything else, USC and UCLA combined are doing a far better job of that than Harvard and Yale combined. Uh, I mean, by a scale of probably three or four to one. Uh, so uh, with all due respect, I mean, it seems to me you need to carry your efforts to where you can get more yield on what you're doing. No, I, I completely accept all, all of that wisdom. Um, your entire, your group, I mean, the, the wisdom here, I am humbled and just honored to receive it. The lens I see everything through um, is not solely a systemic racism lens, but I see the Republican Party is overwhelmingly committed to making the wealthiest people richer and everybody else uh, can fall by the wayside, which means poorer. And the Democrats are not pure either. Uh, they're pretty bad on that, but the Republicans are the worst. And I wanna know what both Ezra and Leo think about um, that agenda. I'm sorry, I'm still not, which, which agenda? The, the, the agenda of making the rich richer. And if, if most of the wealthiest people are white men, then it follows that they will be the ones who Trump or Mitch McConnell or whoever will try to make richer. Yeah. Um, and, and the resources come from someplace and they come from all the rest of us, I think. And I wanted your reactions, both of you. Leo, you're the guest, so you go first. So, so my answer to that, that is a, that is a, that's a big, big, big issue. Obviously, um, you have to debate whether or not you believe in supply-side economics and, and the idea of, uh, you know, uh, having a free market way of thinking creates more innovation, allows people to develop more dignity because they are involved in making things with their own hands. Um, or do you believe that government should have a stronger role in, in, in dispersing and distributing wealth 
Um, those are debates that we need to have more of. We've had plenty of, and we haven't had enough. We need you know, have those from the likes of where Republicans like William F. Buckley might have even had a debate with a Stokely Carmichael or, you know, <laughs> and that, that kind of thing. But we just don't have those kinds of debates anymore as much as we used to. And we need to get back to that. I was asked by a financial house in 2014 um, to give a talk with them about whether or not they thought Donald Trump could win. And they were obviously trying to hedge their bets based on what, you know, whether or not Donald Trump, a, a pro-markets guy would win. And the discussion basically kind of took a turn of just talking about the value of capitalism and sharing capitalism. And what I concluded to them is that if you don't figure out how to share capitalism and the benefits of capitalism, then it will be demonized. It will be more than just called racist. It will be called un-American eventually. If capitalism doesn't become more moral, if it doesn't become fairer, if, it, if we don't start looking at the wealth inequalities and how to fix that in very real ways. Yes, we are in trouble as a nation um, functionally, but we're also spiritually at, in trouble um, because so too many people are losing. And I don't believe that there's a better system. I personally don't believe that there's a better system than capitalism. So we have to figure that out. We have to, we have to decide whether or not we can reimagine capitalism in a way that more people can share in the benefits. And, I, and, and giving it all to the wealthy is not the way. But I also don't believe that creating a larger welfare state is, is, is the best answer either. And I think there's gonna be, there's a combination of that and, and, and that needs to happen. I'd like to comment if I may, and perhaps raise a question. Uh, people are fundamentally selfish. That's a fundamental characteristic of human beings. We who are Christians call it a fundamental deadly sin, if you will. Un unre unregulated capitalism enables those that uh, have to get more and leave others in the dust. I think there has to be some mix of, a, of regula regulation which keeps capitalism under control and benefits those who cannot, who are less able to help themselves rise up. And pure capitalism, I don't think will do that. It may do it for some, but it won't do it for many. Uh, and and uh, Ronald Reagan went a long way toward destroying the New Deal by the, by the change in the tax law, reducing the upper marginal rates down from what they were before to a very much lower rate. And uh, so I don't think Ronald Reagan is a hero. I really don't. And certainly Trump is not a hero. I think the Republican Party has taken a major caliber bomb hit in Donald Trump, and it probably cannot be salvaged. Well, I am... I'm a little bit uh, farther down the road uh, than my good my good buddy Leo in answering this, because I think uh, I am I am I'm much more on the European, particularly the French side, with respect to education, health, and so on, and I am not afraid to use the word socialism, capitalism. Capitalism has been tried in its pure, it's relatively impure state and so on and so forth. You cannot have, I think, I think, I think, and I'm not an economist and all that sort of stuff, but my view in a practical sense is that when you, when you conceptualize what you want to do with your government, with the power, with, with the resources it has at its, uh, as it finger, at its fingertips, 
the, be the best model is to recognize that in certain arenas, you're gonna go socialist. Health is one of them for me. Another one is education. Um, I, I, th I think the issue of taking care of the security, the security of the state on a national level works much better in Europe than it does here. So those are three arenas that it's settled for me. Um, and capitalism cannot handle those things because people are too motivated to do the best they can uh, to, uh, to remain rich. You, um, if, 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 you, if you travel abroad uh, and you do all the stuff that comes, you look at all the stuff that comes out of the United Nations and so on, the United States, for example, it keeps saying it's, it's, uh, it's the richest country in the world and it has the best healthcare system and so all that's been disproven. You do not have the best healthcare system here. The better health healthcare system is, is in other countries using a mixture of capitalism and socialism. You've got to have a socialist approach that takes care of, uh, of, of the people who simply don't have access to, uh, you know, to the resources. And, it's, and it's, it's a shocking psychological thing, which I can tell you, I just simply don't understand. Um, for example, the spreading around of, of the COVID vaccine and so on is absolutely a socialist approach. And I don't understand why Americans are so offended at using the word socialism applied, applied to these health interventions. They're socialists, they're not capitalists. Uh, you, um, in fact, I remember years ago coming across an article and I had never thought about it like that. You know, people say, for example, the delivery of the mail. The delivery of the mail is essentially a socialist intervention because some people live way out in the country and it costs a lot of money to deliver the mail out there. So you've, that's why you have subventions for the delivery of mail. It's the same thing with security. You, you, you've, the state's got to take care of the security to keep people relatively safe because it has not only a practical aspect to that, it has a psychological aspect. You feel much better about your life and so on. So I think I've answered the question. Um, right. uh, I, 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 I think it's pretty clear for me where I am on that, how you mix socialism. And Leo, that, that's what I recommend. You got to mix it. And, and Ezra, when I say reimagining capitalism, that's that's part of the mix. Oftentimes, I the practicality of my approach to engaging with people across difference is sometimes acknowledging the blockages that they have. And if their blockage is that they've been hearing the word socialism weaponized, weaponized as this evil, 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 evil thing, Amen. the way for me to get progress with them is not to try and keep using the word socialism because they're not going to like it. But if I say, oh, I want to reimagine capitalism, I have an entryway uh, more likely than I would by keep saying I'm selling you on socialism. I hear that. I hear that. That's strategy. Well, listen, Leo, thank you so much then for coming on. And uh, I, I hope we will, I hope you'll come back as a Democrat at some point. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> That is it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. And as far as we know, Leo Smith is still a Republican. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>